This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Mike Smith in for Simi talking about housing affordability on the show yesterday. Our phone lines blew up because of this call we got on the buzz line. Have a listen. Uh, My parents came. We immigrated here from Italy uh, in the early 50s. My father worked two or three jobs just to be able to afford his first house, never complaining, never whining, not saying, well, we can't afford anything. And he instilled that in all of his kids. And we did the same thing. We worked when we went through high school and university. We all worked one or two jobs to pay for our university, to save up money for a home. We each bought our own home, and we worked hard. We're instilling that in our kids today. I had a recent friend of mine, she got divorced, I think, about six years ago. Anyway, her husband had nothing, left her with nothing, took off to Portugal, and here's this poor lady with three children, and you know what? She did it all on her own, and she owns a big home, and she still supports her kids, and she works hard. Uh, And to take away from all of us that work so hard to give to everybody who's whining and crying because they can't afford anything, because they want to work at one job, 7 o'clock in the morning till 3 o'clock, five days a week, and not have to sacrifice anything at all. They want to continue traveling, have their three or four computers, their cell phones, their uh, electric cars, or who knows how many vehicles, their coffees in the morning. And that's how they live. And they just sit back and whine that they can't afford it. You know what? Too bad. This government has to go. Mike, this government is ruining this province. You can see the province going downhill now. Take the equity away and see what happens. With all the taxes that are going up, and now people are losing equity in their homes, people are becoming poor. What happens when that happens, Mike? Okay, you're talking about a hot take there. Now he says, stop whining about home prices. You sacrifice and work harder instead. Do you agree with him? Let's find out on the hot question of the day on Twitter. Would you say, yes, I agree with this guy? You'd say, yes, it takes sacrifice to afford to buy a home? Or would you say, no, the prices are out of control? At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter. Follow me while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. Mike Smith News on Twitter. And... Phone me on the buzz line on that one and tell me what you think about what you just heard there. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. Qasem Soleimani. That's a name I think most people probably never heard of before. The whole world knows that name now. Iran now vowing severe retaliation after a U.S. airstrike killed its top general, Qasem Soleimani. U.S. President Donald Trump sending out a series of tweets this morning confirming he ordered the airstrike that killed the Iranian general. He said the general was plotting to kill many Americans. He also tweeted out he should have been taken out many years ago. Reaction south of the border, kind of falling along partisan lines. A lot of Republicans praising Trump for a show of strength against the Iranians. Uh, Democrats, though, saying this plunges the Middle East into a whole lot of uncertainty. Joe Biden 
the presumptive Democratic nominee for president, says Trump just tossed a stick of dynamite into a tinderbox. Where does this go from here now? Let's check in with Professor Stephanie Carvin now. She's Assistant Professor of International Relations at Carleton University. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi. Hi. Thanks a lot for coming on. Who is this guy? Can you explain why it's important that who this guy is? Because a lot of people here may have never heard of him, but he was very popular in Iran, we're told. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was someone who is um, w- was very uh, symbolically important. He certainly seems to have cultivated a cult of personality around him. You know, we're being told that it was not uncommon to see pictures of him on the street or even, like, objects uh, with his photos on it in uh, various gift shops and paraphernalia and things like that. But um, for, from a national security perspective, this was someone who uh, was in charge of the um, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force. And what's important there is that it is, of course, a listed terrorist organization, not just by the United States, but also by Canada. They are responsible for engaging in a number of uh, very deadly terror attacks around the world. Um, this individual was a mastermind of Iran's efforts in Syria. So a lot of the fatalities, um, attacks against civilians in Syria were by and large individual. He was, uh, you know, helping to uh, engage in crackdowns against protesters in Iraq who are, who are upset with the government and aren't particularly happy with the pro-Iranian line that's going on. This right. guy had his fingers in a lot of nasty, nasty pies. So, right. um, it's you know, I however you feel about the aftermath of the strike, I, I don't really think we should spend too many tears on this guy. He, he yeah. was... Um, I don't want to simplify it by calling him a bad dude, but um, for the purpose of radio, he was a bad dude. Okay, did the U.S. do the right thing in taking him out like this, and where does this lead the region, do you think? Um, so, <laughs> this is a good question. It is a... I, I, think, I think what it comes down to is this, is um, when you engage in an action like this, and, and certainly I think, you know, the U.S. can probably rightfully claim self-defense here, was this guy plotting attacks against U.S. forces in the region, against the U.S. Embassy. Almost certainly. I mean, that's, that was his literal job. Um, but the question comes down to, you know, do the costs outweigh the benefits? Right. So the benefits are that, you know, you've taken this out, you know, you've taken strong symbolic action against Iran, you know, a country that uh, the United States has had very poor relations with now for basically 40 years. Um, and, and, you know, it sends a, you know, I think in the eyes of many, it sends a signal that, you know, Iran's meddling is not to be tolerated in the region that the U.S. will actually stand up and deter its interests. Because let's face it, there has been a growing tension in the region. Iran has engaged in extremely provocative activities in the region. Uh, just late last year, of course, they attacked, you know, not directly, they used their proxies to uh, attack a Saudi oil field. Right. Um, without, you know, they've been engaging in increasing attacks on shipping in the Strait of Hormuz, which is kind of contested territory. So I think for the supporters of this, that's what they're going to point to. I think for people who are saying, well, the costs are going to outweigh the benefits. So saying, look, you know, when you engage in a strike like this, the chips fall and you can never predict where they're going to fall. And so, you know, if, if the rationale for the attack was that there was going to be an imminent attack against the United States, well, that risk of an imminent attack has just increased like 800 fold. 
right? So you, you've now taken a possibility and, and turned it into a virtual certainty. Yeah, and I mean, we don't really know. Iran has a number of tools that they can use, which you can talk about, uh, whether proxy forces, uh, it could be a, a, some kind of terror strike. Um, we shouldn't underestimate their cyber capabilities, right? They, they, they have very good cyber capabilities. So I think the concern that a lot of people have now is just the... Uh, just the uncertainty in what's going to happen, except for the fact that the likelihood of some kind of uh, Iranian response has now increased. Right. I, I wonder about the unintended consequences here or, or the predictability of what's going to happen. It just seems like it's impossible to predict where this is going to go, because if you think back to when the United States took out Saddam Hussein, for example, and, and that led to the rise of al-Qaeda in Iraq and then to the rise of ISIS. So you just never know where these things are going to go when actions like this are taken. But do you think the obviously Iran cannot not respond, right? I mean, this is kind of a direct attack on their top general. They've got to reply, right? They, they will respond. Yeah, I think that's right. The question is how and against who. So yeah. there's a number of things. I, I think you know, Iran is a lot of things, but they're not crazy. Um, they are actually fairly rational, and I don't mean that as a compliment. I just mean that they have a good understanding of their interests and their calculations. doesn't mean that they don't mess up from time to time, but, you know, they're not going to engage, I think, in any kind of action that would actually undermine their ability to continue to rule Iran with an iron fist, right? The the government wants to stay in place. So I don't necessarily think they're going to strike the U.S. directly. I think, you know, and this is all conjecture, like, let's put this on this, but I mean, um, I think one of the concerns of the U.S. allies in the region right now, uh, particularly Saudi Arabia and Israel, is that Iran will take it out on them because the United States would probably, you know, the public would probably support military action against something that was directly targeting the U.S. or or some kind of U.S. target overseas. But, you know, there's not, you know, Saudi Arabia is not very popular. And if Iran strikes Saudi Arabia, it hurts the United States, but there's not a lot of popular support to actually attack them in the long run. So I think that's the concern of the allies, which is why we're now seeing, um, you know, it was announced this morning that 3,500 U.S. troops are now being deployed to the region. And I strongly suspect that uh, trying to send some kind of reassurance to U.S. allies in the region, particularly Israel and Saudi Arabia, that um, the U.S. will will try and protect their interests in the region, although it, it's uncertain to the degree they can realistically do that. It, it really is impossible, I guess, to kind of predict where what's going to happen because Iran is kind of like a octopus in the region with all these tentacles everywhere. You know, this is Syria, Gaza, all these different little countries or these proxy wars going on. So, I mean, something could erupt in any of these places so, and, instead of like a direct like shooting war against the United States, like you mentioned. So as we watch this unfold, what, what, should, what should Canada be doing or thinking? Like, I, have we heard any response at all from the Canadian government? I, I haven't heard any this morning yet. Yeah, so uh, uh, the new foreign minister, Francois Champagne, has actually yeah. put out a statement as of this okay. morning. It is extremely cautious. Uh, it basically kind of summari- summarizes the facts and, and emphasizes that Canada's you know, priority in the region is um, uh, kind of stabilization, de-escalation, and things like that. So it, it's certainly by no means an endorsement of what happened. It's not a straightforward condemnation, but it expresses effectively concern about further escalation in the region, which I think is about as prudent of a statement that you're going to get. Right now, what I suspect is worrying people in Ottawa is the fact that you have um, 
uh, up to 850 troops deplo- deployed in the region. I believe it's 500 troops that are in Iraq specifically as a part of a NATO training mission. Already, right. those troops have been under pressure because of ongoing instability in the country. Uh, to do, like, there's been a lot of protests there. People are very unhappy with the government right now. So, how that's affected is going to be interesting. But I think there's going to be some worry about the safety of those uh, uh, Canadian troops in the region. Uh, more broadly, there's going to be worry about further instability. Certainly, that's not good for the global economy. Yeah. And then uh, also there's some concern of, of course, um, Canada lists the IRGC could force uh, the organization that Soleimani led as a terrorist group. And that's because it's deemed that they pose a terrorist threat to Canada. Um, so there's some concern. Could, could for example, the um, Iranians seek to target um, American or Israeli interests in Canada? Uh, as an example, um, that's not entirely far removed. There's going to be concern about Iranian cyber activities. If Iran des- decides to strike in a cyber manner, um, those attacks don't respect global borders, right? They spread very quickly. So there's a number of things that I think the Canadian government will be reviewing. And um, this will be a, a top priority concern for the government, at least for okay. the next couple of days. Okay, speaking of Stephanie Carvin from Carleton University, just one more question for you in the minute we got left. What do you think is the Trump White House plan here? I mean, is there an apparent (laughs) plan or an end game, or what do you think that Trump wants to see happen here? It's sort of classic classic Trump. You can't predict what he's going to do or or what the plan is. Yeah, and that's going to be the major concern for the Allies. So one of the things I'm interested in, did... Uh, Trump or his administration warn U.S. allies that this was actually going to happen. We've uh, There's been some reporting that suggests the U.K. was unaware. That, to me, suggests that Canada was probably unaware as well. Um, but we, we don't know for sure yet. Uh, but it just goes to show how difficult it is to work with such an unpredictable administration. We have no idea if they have a long-term game in mind. We have no idea if, you know, this was a well-thought-out mission or if this is something that Trump was convinced to do on a golf course. Um, And this is a real problem, that the leader of the free world is kind of making these uh, very dramatic decisions with really out any input from allies or any kind of respect for their um, concerns. And will that then impact the way that allies engage with the United States missions in the future? Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. Well, we've talked a lot about ride-hailing on the show, or more specifically, lack thereof. The B.C. government, of course, promised we'd have these services by the end of 2019. Didn't happen, although indications that license approvals are imminent for Uber and Lyft, the two big global ride-hailing companies. They're advertising heavily, uh, telling British Columbia residents and Metro Vancouver residents, get ready, it's going to happen. You're going to have these services. But the debate is still going on. Is this industry a good thing or a bad thing for Metro Vancouver and for British Columbia? Let's do the ride-hailing debate here now. I got both sides of it for you. Ian Tostenson is here. He's the president and CEO of Ride Sharing Now for BC. Ian, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Michael. Also on the line is Stuart Parker, president of the Los Altos Institute. He's a former leader of the B.C. Green Party, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Stuart. Great to be back on the show, Mike. Appreciate it a lot. Ian, let me go to you first. Why do you support ride-hailing in B.C.? Well, I think ride-hailing, the way it is looking at it right now, Mike, is is ride-hailing 1.0, and I think we have to look forward to 2.0, 3.0 in terms of the possibilities, which I get really excited about. And that's the ability to 
look at the the transportation network in terms of shared rides connecting into public transit reducing people's ownership of private cars which is one of the stated goals of uber and lyft um, utilizing their technology for other uh, other types of services like bikes and scooters these are all things that both those companies are doing uh, a lot of work within the states are doing a lot of work with the governments in the states and and knowing these guys and work working with uber and lyft a lot i know they have a lot to bring to the table and i know they have a lot to bring to you know, the concerns we have in our economy with respect to congestion and pollution. But if okay. we get to higher versions, I think we'll be really happy with it. Okay, Stuart, why are you opposed to it? Well, I think uh, your first speakers outlined it brilliantly. Ride-hailing 1.0 is a disastrous failure. It increases sexual assault. It increases emissions. It increases congestion. It reduces funding and frequency for public transit. It's an unmitigated disaster that your guest isn't even trying to defend. So, I mean, sure, I might be excited about some of the future ride hailing that's not happening right now that he's talking about. But until it applies to come to B.C., um, I have no interest in uh, seeing a company like Uber depress people's wages, increase congestion. Half a billion animals were just incinerated in Australia, and we want to do something that would increase emissions? That's insanity. Ian, what do you say to him? Uh, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, I think we're being a little bit extreme by trying to tie this into Australia. I think, again, as you see this model evolving, is that it does move to electrification down the road. So uh, it's not as bad as, as Stuart, as you're saying it is. These companies have made some great advancements. These companies are relatively new. They have had some problems, but certainly not to the extent that you have. I mean, if you look at job satisfaction with uh, ride-hailing drivers in the United States, um, you'll see that 50% of the people are, when they're an educated population driving, they tend to be older, are very happy with the income they're making. They're part-time drivers. So it's. Okay. I know you like to sort of pick these examples of the whole system, but you're entirely wrong. Stuart. I'm not entirely wrong. You're conceding almost all the points that I'm making. Every study that has measured emissions with the addition of ride hailing has shown a massive increase. 251 megatons of additional emissions just from switching to ride hailing in Paris alone. So... You know, you keep talking about, well, these things are going to happen because ride-hailing is going to make them happen. If ride-hailing makes the things happen that you're talking about, it would be doing it now. But instead, it's making the opposite of those things happen, congestion and higher emissions and lower wages. And, okay. uh, you yeah, know, what do you, what do you say about what, what do you say about the that we cannot dispute? There's statistics that even Uber admits to. Ian, what do you say about the, the fear of congestion and, and emissions in Metro Vancouver if we go with us? Well, actually, I think that you'll see is a modification of congestion in Vancouver because what Stuart's not pointing out here is that congestion is dependent on the cities that ride hailing exists in and relative to the public trans, uh, transportation systems that we have. You'll see that even TransLink has come out in favor of ride-sharing as a link to uh, getting more people using public transit and right. more people out of their cars. Right. So Stewart can say all he wants about this kind of stuff. He's doom and gloom, but it's not the way it is. Uh, I don't think he's probably read the 
study out of Toronto recently that um, that showed that despite the fact that shared or popularity of um, ride sharing is up tremendously in Toronto, it has not added appreciably to the number of trips, which has added three percent to the overall trips in Toronto. And at the same time, it's up 140 in share rides in Toronto, and that's people sharing rides, getting out of their cars, and opting to right. take a uh, a, a, a rideshare versus driving their own vehicle. Stuart, what do you say to that? That's sophistry. I mean, this we're getting people out of their cars and into cars. Um, that's not an argument in favor of this. What we need is proper investment in public transit. What we need is a decent uh, transportation grid. What we need are taxi licenses that tie driving the vehicle to owning the taxi. There's a whole bunch of common sense regulations that are working, and those are the regulations that are being brought in in the jurisdictions that had ride-sharing, found it was a disaster, and have banned it. But, Why go but, through this experiment? Hmm. We know that initially it will be popular, and then the system deteriorates, and that's because it's an unstable system that relies on two things, illegally underpaying drivers and massive investment from Silicon Valley investors who are dumping money into this financial disaster that's losing it at a rate of billions of dollars. Okay, well, I don't think they're being illegally being underpaid, but, you know, there is an argument that maybe they're not being fairly paid. Ian, what do you say to that? Well, I, Stuart can't make his comments with any fact-based approach to it. This is irresponsible on his part. Um, these are part-time people. They average 15 to $18 an hour in the United States driving for rideshare companies. And they have the, the complete option not to do that. These are not, in the majority of cases, Stuart, these are people that are working part-time in, in addition to their primary jobs to make extra income. These are a service that provides a great service to elderly people to provide the convenience they get to medical uh, appointments and to socialize and stuff. So there's an awful lot of good things that come out of this. But as long as you have uh, this negative attitude about, you know, the way the system should be, what you're talking about will never happen for many, many years. And the system will currently create inconvenience for the public. As we continue with the ride-hailing debate, Ian Tostenson, president of ride-sharing now for BC, Stuart Parker, Los Altos Institute. He's a former leader of the BC Green Party. He is opposed to ride-hailing. Your calls to them, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Maggie in Surrey, hi. Hi, Mike. Love your show. Um, God gave us two ears and a mouth. And that fellow that want, doesn't want ride-sharing doesn't listen. He just tries to interrupt. He is not right. He is wrong. And maybe he what has he a wrong few about? points. Well, because we have 21 cities in this very small area, and we can't get from one place to another. There's a river in between. And, hey, the rest of the world can't be wrong. So okay, we're, Stuart, we're, what, Stuart, what do you say to her? Well, I, I don't, I'm not here to defend the state of the taxi industry in the lower mainland. One of the things we often see before Uber moves into a jurisdiction is um, a, uh, 
that uh, the taxi system is poorly maintained and poorly run. No one would come on CKNW and say the taxi system in Greater Vancouver is in tip-top shape. The question is, do we fix it or do we come up with a system run by billionaires in Silicon Valley that takes whatever future profits out of British Columbia pays them to American investors, and makes those profits mainly by depressing driver wages. I also want to address something that we said earlier in the previous segment. Um, You said, well, Uber doesn't do it illegally. Well, in fact, Uber's in court all over the United States over its labor practices because more and more American governments do think it's breaking labor laws by treating people who are actually employees as independent contractors. So we've got a serious problem. Do we solve it with our money, our infrastructure, our investments, or do we bring in a bunch of Californians who have run transportation systems into the ground in Germany, France, England? Let's go back to the calls. Mike and Burnaby, hi. Hi, I just had a a comment for uh, Ian saying that... uh, the drivers seem to be pretty happy all the time. He's saying they're part time, but weren't there uh, weren't there some global protests like a couple months ago or maybe last year? All around the world, drivers don't seem to be too happy with those companies. Ian, yeah, there's uh, yeah for sure. Um, the um, so what Stuart's referring to is not illegal. is It's a definitional issue in California with respect to whether they are employees or whether they're contractors. So it's not illegal. It's just a straight legal determination. Uh, and you're right about that. There have been uh, areas in the world that um, there have been a portion of the drivers um, that have um, have pushed back in terms of better working conditions. Um, I, I think it's fair to say and balanced to say that it's not the majority of them. It's a okay. group of them. Again, that's part of the evolution. I mean, I, and Stuart doesn't want to accept the fact that the system is going to evolve. Um, the system does require drivers. And the system needs to make some adjustments to keep the drivers more interested in driving. There is a high turnover for rideshare drivers in the U.S. about every two years. But if you look at the future, if you look at some of the opportunities in ridesharing in terms of car design and electrification and eventually autonomous drivers or autonomous cars, there is a lot of potential here to solve a lot of the problems that Stuart's talking about. I like to find solutions and I think that ride-sharing provides an opportunity for some of the solutions in the future. In terms of whether the drivers are underpaid, Ian, you quoted some statistics in the United States. What were those average average wages that ride-hailing, ride-hailing drivers are earning in the United uh, States? You'll see that um, here's, here's $15 to $18 per hour is the average wage, depending on which company you're working for. Most okay. are part-time drivers. Okay, fifteen to eighteen dollars an hour, Stuart. That sounds is that reasonable to you, or do you uh, buy in that? Sure, if uh, if I accepted that statistic, um, and many many dispute it, it's an in-house statistic. That um, frankly, if you look at Uber drivers, if you look at the main companies, you see far lower wages. I don't know what the sampling rate is that's being used to calculate those averages, but uh, they're certainly not the experience of people on the ground. There's certainly not why Uber drivers are unionizing, why Uber drivers have the company in court, why governments have them in court. And uh, also, but by the end of this mandate, $15 an hour will be an illegal wage to pay in British Columbia. So let's recognize that what's being talked about is 
I don't even know how an average could be 15 to 18. Isn't it supposed to be a number, not a range of numbers? So I'm pretty skeptical. And even if it were 15, that would be against the law here by the time these uh, vehicles roll out. Also, again, you know, there are exciting things that are going to happen in the future. Why don't Uber and Lyft wait and show up when those exciting things have happened? Those electrified vehicles, those well, driverless vehicles, that they're pe- promising. People are looking Today, for rides now. We're getting just, uh, yeah. a fossil fuel-powered vehicle with a driver, and that's the way you're going to get an electrical vehicle without one. Okay, that's Stuart, I just got jump in there, Ian. We just got 30 seconds if you want to wrap it up there, your last thoughts. Yeah, I, Stuart, I'm just a little perplexed why the Green Party of British Columbia were the ones that really helped us bring in ride-sharing potentially to BC, and you're way off the charts in this one. I don't understand it. And I really am dismayed at the fact that you're much more rhetoric than you are fact-based. And I hope for the people okay. of British Columbia, we get ride-sharing in the next two or three weeks. Okay, I know Stuart would love to respond to that, but we're out of time. But I know you, you, both, you guys both got a lot of time, so I appreciate both of you for being here. Thank you very much. Ian Tostenson, thank you guys. Ian Tostenson, ride-hailing now for BC. Stuart Parker, he's with the Los Altos Institute. He's the former leader of the BC Green Party uh, many years ago. Appreciate both of theirs and their time, both of them and their time. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah today. Let's talk about housing affordability in Metro Vancouver now and the news this week about property values declining, at, at least as reflected in annual assessment notices. Uh, mailed out to homeowners in Metro Vancouver showing a general decline in property values across the region. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Let's check in with now with BC Housing Minister Selena Robinson. Minister, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it a lot. What are your thoughts on these uh, housing values we saw on these assessments these week, this week? Well, this is a positive sign that our government's efforts uh, to make housing more affordable for more British Columbians are having a real impact. We need to remember where we were a couple of years ago, where the previous government just sat back and watched housing prices climb well out of reach of average British Columbians. Um, and people, the people that are living in regions that are hardest hit by these sky, those sky-high property value increases, they're starting to see a moderation now in housing prices, and that's a good thing. Okay, but you could hardly call the market affordable now, though, right? For, I mean, for most people who are non-millionaires, it's still very difficult to buy a home. It's absolutely still very difficult, and so we still have some work to do. Uh, making sure that we moderate the market is was one of our, our tasks, and making sure that we have the right kind of supply that people can afford is the other part. And so these um, two different um, actions um, will make a difference and are making a difference for, for, what, for British Columbians. What was your goal when the government sort of intervened in the market and started bringing out some of these taxes and policies to kind of su- suppress demand and, and cool off the market? I assume you're not looking to crash the housing market. You're looking to, what, let some air out of the balloon, so to speak? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. To, to softly um, have it settle and stabilize. We're seeing now, uh, you know, the trend that sort of has it stabilized. It was out of control. Again, let's remember yeah. where we were a couple of years ago with 30 and 40 percent increases that were 
absolutely unsustainable. And remember, it, it affected people who were working so hard to get into the market, and every year they just kept going out of reach and out of reach and out of reach. And remember, people were starting to leave. They're saying, we can't have a family. We need to leave. And that's not good for the economy, and it's not good for British Columbians. It's not good for me as a parent. I'd like my children to be able to stay. And so we needed to uh, stabilize a market that was out of control, uh, and we're doing that, and that's happening. And we need to be building the right kind of supply, and we're doing that as well. Okay. What about, though, speaking of the economy, is there not also a negative economic impact from lost equity in real estate? I mean, if you took a, take a look over the entire Metro Vancouver region, uh, there's about $35 billion, billion in equity has, has disappeared. Is that not a bad thing? Is that, is that a negative for the, the economy? Well, the negative for the economy is when you can't find workers to work in businesses. The negative for the economy is when people have to spend three hours in vehicles or in transit in order to get to their jobs. That was having real impact. And so we know that we needed to stabilize the market. Everyone was calling for that. British Columbians were saying this is unsustainable. Uh, and so moderating the market is, is a key factor. It's a key focus of our government, as well as making sure that we can build the right kind of supply in the communities that need certain kind of supply so that we can have housing that meets the needs right. of people who live and work and play here in British Columbia. Speaking to BC Housing Minister Selena Robinson, your your opposite critic on the Liberal Party, Todd Stone, put out a news release yesterday saying that housing in the Lower Mainland is still no more affordable today than it was in 2017. Rents continued to climb. He says that rather than getting to the root of the problem and increasing housing supply, the NDP government is focused on damaging policies that make no difference in housing affordability. He says you need to build more stuff. You need to get more homes built and on the market to increase supply, and you're not doing a good enough job on that. How do you respond to that? Well, let's be really clear that under his watch, because he was around the cabinet table, they were very happy to sit and just watch as things got out of control for British Columbians. We've taken significant steps to not only moderate the market, but we've almost as of August, I think, if, if I recall, we're at 23,000 homes that are uh, that are being built. Um, so we've committed funding for over 22,000 units that are underway, and that's our commitment. And housing starts are higher than even the BC Liberals had had uh, anticipated. So we know that we are focusing on the right things. We absolutely need more time. I mean, you know, they sat and did nothing. We've taken significant action, and we're starting to see those results pay off. Okay, speaking of those housing units that have been delivered or getting built right now, aren't you guys behind on the, your promises here? Because you guys, I know you guys promised 114,000 new units of housing. And that was over 10 years. We have uh, just over 3,000 homes that are complete. There's another 6,300 more where we have people actually swinging hammers on site. On, on site. And we have, I think it's 14, about 14,000 that are in the development approval process. And, uh, and I know that there's certainly been complaints about how long that takes. And we're also okay. uh, reviewing the development approval process to speed that up. So we are firing on all cylinders. We are actively okay. working on all 30 points of our 30-point plan. And we're going to continue to, um, to pound away at a problem that we need to remember. The BC Liberals sat back and were content to see housing prices climb beyond the capacity of the average British Columbians. Okay. They did nothing. Minister, thank you for coming on. 
All right. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Right, thank you. Appreciate it. BC Housing Minister Selena Robinson. Well, you heard her ripping the Liberals there. Let's get their response right now on the line. Liberal MLA Todd Stone is the official opposition housing critic. Uh, hello, Todd Stone. Thanks for coming on. Well, happy New Year, Mike. Okay, I know you were listening to her remarks there. She was taking some good shots at the Liberals there. How do you respond to her? Well, I wouldn't characterize those as good shots. Uh, uh, they're, they're inaccurate shots. Uh, <laughs> okay. uh, she has created a, uh, a narrative here uh, to try and suggest that, uh, that, that the former government uh, had, had done nothing and was doing nothing uh, to, uh, to make life more affordable or to, and to create more supply. Uh, in, uh, in, in, you'll remember in 2016, uh, 2017, we, we actually um, launched an investment of almost a billion dollars to create uh, 5,300 units of, uh, of affordable rental housing across British Columbia. And in fact, uh, during our, our entire time in government, we invested almost $5 billion in, uh, in creating a new units of housing. And these were actual uh, units of housing that had real people uh, in them, uh, unlike uh, the NDP's claims and, but, and the minister's claims uh, to have having uh, created 24,000 units to this point. She, she has uh, cre- presided over a government that has created uh, uh, that has actually opened the doors on uh, barely 2,500 units of uh, new units of, uh, of affordable housing across British Columbia against a target of 114,000 units that, uh, that they well, promised. Well, she said that's over 10 years. Sure, sure, but uh, I, I would I would argue that uh, uh, at the pace that they're at, uh, 2,400 in the first uh, two and a half years, uh, uh, you know, it's going to take uh, it's going to take uh, you know 100 years before they they uh, they fulfill their 114,000 she... uh, commitment for, uh, for for affordable housing. And, and she like, says life uh, is not more affordable uh, under the NDP. Housing is not more affordable uh, today than it was uh, in 2017. Uh, the Royal Bank of Canada puts out their uh, their benchmark affordability index for housing. Uh, uh, back in uh, 2016, uh, 81.1% of, of families in, in uh, Vancouver could afford uh, a home. Uh, today, that uh, that number is 82%. Uh, so it's actually it's actually gotten worse. Uh, the BC Real Estate Association also pointed out uh, about two months ago that uh, they believe, based on the tracking of uh, of, of housing uh, sales in the province, that um, prices may be now going back up um, as of uh, yeah, October, right. uh, up about 5.1% year over year. So yeah. uh, housing is not any more affordable today. Uh, Are you willing, would you be willing to... Two and a half years ago. Would you be willing to admit, though, I mean, she's saying that basically blaming you guys for the housing affordability crisis, would you be willing to admit it and acknowledge that the root of this problem, it started when you guys were in power? There, there is no question uh, that, uh, um, you know, a, a lot more needed to be done uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to um, ensure that more British Columbians and more Vancouverites, uh, more Metro Vancouverites, more folks in Victoria and so forth uh, could, uh, could, could afford uh, uh, to get into the housing market. That's why we, uh, we took the actions uh, that we took as, a, uh, as the former government in the, in the, uh, the uh, 2015-16-17 period, uh, and, um, and we, we made no bones about the fact okay. that there was no question that more needed to be done. It was actually our government that introduced the, uh, the, foreign, uh, the 15% foreign buyers tax. Uh, right. you know, it, was, it was our government that uh, amended the legislation to enable the city of Vancouver to create the vacancy tax that uh, exists in the city yeah. of Vancouver. So, you know, this, I think where the minister grossly oversteps here, in addition to not delivering on the commitments that her party made, um, she, to suggest that the former government did, quote-unquote, nothing, uh, is just patently uh, wrong. And I think British Columbians can see through that, more so today than, uh, than previously, because uh, right. this is a government that is failing to deliver on the commitment to, uh, to make housing more affordable, life more affordable, and to create 114,000 units of, of uh, new housing across British Columbia. 
Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right, this is Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's talk about the breaking news at this hour. Police investigating the first homicide of the year in Vancouver, and it comes as many feared after a serious assault in Oppenheimer Park on New Year's Day. Of course, the location of that tent city. Vancouver police say a man was assaulted just before 1 p.m. on January 1st near the basketball courts in the park. The victim identified as Jesus Cristobal Esteban, 62 years old. He died in hospital yesterday. Police continuing to investigate. Now, this is something that a lot of people feared. In fact, Melissa DiGenova, Vancouver City Councilor, told Global News just last month, quote, with the, there was a shooting at that time, with, with the shooting and another re- shooting recently related to Oppenheimer Park, I'm concerned it's only a matter of time before we unfortunately do see a death. I don't want to fearmonger, but do I lose sleep over this? In fact, I do, unquote. Uh, Melissa DiGenova joins me now. Counselor, uh, sadly, you were correct there in your in your what you thought was going to happen. Yes, Mike, it's a really unfortunate way to start 2020. And I'm saddened to hear about this news. I understand that the Vancouver Police Department just moments ago have released a statement. They have indeed. And, and it is it is sad news. And this is uh, is it fair to say this? Is, you thought this was going to happen? Something like this. Well, I, I mean, it's 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 difficult to predict this, but I, I take what our uh, our first responders say very seriously as a city council member, but also as a former park board commissioner um, who was on the park board at a very volatile time. Uh, and during that time, you know, there wasn't a lot of agreement on that park board uh, back in 2013. Um, however, with Oppenheimer Park in that situation, that board uh, came together and called for an injunction and supported an injunction and together cleared the park because of the safety concerns that we were hearing about. And uh, it's not necessarily violence from people in the park. I want to make that very clear. It's that these people uh, who have no other place to go, some of them, um, are sitting ducks. Uh, they may have had a place to go before. Uh, I I know uh, I've spoken with with uh, with many uh, with with many media outlets, uh, especially during the month of August when I was uh, deputy and acting mayor and uh, was in close communication with our staff. Uh, BC Housing had come in. Our, some of our staff had uh, postponed their vacations, and every single person on that site was offered housing. That's not to take away from the situation uh, that we're in now, you know, this devastating news about, um, I mean, a life has been lost here. Yes. Um, and and I, I think that we there was concern that that could happen um, as because of the overdose crisis, because of the way people were heating their tents, um, or also because of the violent criminal element that we're seeing around Oppenheimer Park. And my understanding from listening to what the VPD had to say at the park board meeting and also listening to what they'd said at council and answering uh, questions uh, that city council members had was that there was a violent criminal element mm-hmm. that was new to um, this specific area and that was impacting the vulnerable and marginalized people who were uh, part of the encampment. So that's my big concern, mm-hmm. and and this is a very unfortunate situation. You know, okay. uh, I, certainly my thoughts are with uh, 
the friends and family of uh, this individual uh, who unfortunately lost their life. Um, But I I think now we also need to move forward, and I call on the park board to really consider this. I'd hope that there would be a meeting quite quickly, or uh, at least uh, the park board would convene to discuss an injunction. I know that there's a new chair, and I'd call on the chair now. It's absolutely time uh, to make sure that uh, the Park Board is moving forward united. I know that Commissioner John Cooper, Commissioner Tricia Barker had a special meeting of the Park Board uh, because they had concerns about the criminal aspect and because of the safety. Okay, I'm sp- speaking to Vancouver City Council, speaking to Vancouver City Councilor Melissa D. Genova about the first homicide of the year in Vancouver. Uh, she basically predicted it. It is related to Oppenheimer Park. Do you believe, Councillor, you believe the park, the tent city should be shut down and cleared out? Where would those people go if you do that? Well, I'd hope that, again, we could work with BC Housing and that we would be able to find at the very minimum shelter and uh, in the long-term housing for these individuals. We tried before in August, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to do what I can to work with the Park Board and our staff to try and move that forward. But this is a very unfortunate uh, circumstance and way to start off the meeting. Okay, we just have one minute left. You, you mentioned you called the the residents of that tent city down there like sitting ducks because of the the danger down there. Do do you fear that we've got one homicide here now? Do you fear that this could happen again? We could see more violence if something isn't done. Well, Mike, I I drove by Oppenheimer Park on the way to a public hearing, and it was minutes before the last shots were fired. So yeah. I yeah. I myself am, am pretty concerned for not just people who are in the park, but also people who live around the park, people okay. who frequent the area and the neighborhood, uh, the proprietors and businesses in the area. So I, okay. I am concerned. I think okay, there are a number of concerns here. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much. Welcome back. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah. Let's talk about the aftermath now of the U.S. strike on that Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, uh, particularly the economic spinoff here and fallout. Oil prices are up. Some stocks are down, especially airline stocks and others sensitive to oil prices. Let's check in now with Joe McGonagall. Uh, McMonagall. Sorry, Joe. Energy Policy Analyst at Hedgeye Risk Management. Joe, thanks for coming on. Yeah, sure. Happy to be here. Joe, as you take a look at the reaction of the markets here after this uh, U.S. strike on this uh, Iranian general, what's jumping out at you? Yeah, well, it's not really surprising uh, for two reasons. Number one is we're, we're you know, we kind of had this U.S.-China trade deal, you know, at least the phase one part of it in in, in the in the bag. Uh, and that really for 2019 was sort of the dominant uh, narrative, uh, uh, almost exclusively dominating, uh, 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 you know, oil markets. Um, so, you know, you had all these geopolitical events that happened, you know, with tanker attacks and, uh, you know, things in the, you know, uh, you know, attacks in the the Strait of Hormuz, and yeah. and then and of course the attack on the Saudi oil facility. But none of them really registered much in terms of uh, higher oil prices because of the trade, uh, you know, dominant trade narrative. But now we're past that, and and geopolitical uh, concerns are going to matter a little bit more. Um, it's funny. Yesterday we we put out our you know January second we put out sort of our our top five. Uh, 
uh, oil market catalyst for 2020. And of course, on, on the top of the list is, is Iran and continued, uh, you know, instability and geopolitical risk as a result of, uh, you know, the U.S. sanctions on Iran and, and of course, Iran's response, which we call maximum chaos. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, whether it would happen last night, as, as it in fact did, or later, you know, this year, we suspected that there would be some significant, uh, you know, turmoil in oil markets as a result of the U.S.-Iran uh, uh, tension. Okay. what How high could oil prices go here? As you mentioned, some of that other turmoil that we've seen in the region didn't seem to have a huge effect, but man, this really seems to kick it up a notch when the United States has taken out the most powerful general in Iran there and the Iranian government promising a devastating response in, in reply. Could oil prices really surge dramatically? Well, I think uh, oil prices are really responding to, uh, you know, look, the, the, the Iranians went after the, that Abquake oil processing facility in Saudi Arabia, which really was unthinkable before. And so that if they've done something like that, what might they do, uh, you know, uh, as a result of a retaliatory strike? Um, you know, is it, will it, you know, will they go after some kind of U.S. infrastructure, uh, not in the U.S., but in the region, either in Iraq or uh, or somewhere else in, in the region? Um or will it be an an oil uh, asset? Uh, one of the U.S. nearby partners, you know, the U.S. has bases in in Qatar and Bahrain. Uh, you know, would maybe they go back into Saudi Arabia? I, I think they want to probably, you know, they'll probably want to show for domestic cons- cons- political consumption that it's. Uh, you know that they're they're going directly after the U.S., but if it's uh, but it could be an oil-related asset in which that would have even bigger consequences for for oil markets and uh, and uh, so uh, you know look I, I think uh, markets are you know expecting you know further you know retaliatory action from Iran um, and uh, but you know at the same time whatever Iran's probably thinking two steps ahead, you know, what what will the US do in response to that? Much like the Saudis were thinking, what if we strike, what will what will Iran do next? And so I, I happen to think that the you know, first of all, I I doubt Iranians know what they're gonna do yet. Um but I do think it'll be a measured response. I d I don't think there's going to be I, I so I guess I think it's gonna be more measured than other uh, analysts and commentators are speculating about now, and 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 I think it's because the Iranians a don't want to really get into a military confrontation with the U.S. because they end up losing, and uh, and, and two the U.S. doesn't want uh, you know a, you know a, a war here. But I think Trump decided that you know enough was enough. I mean the the Iranians had. Had basically had you know had these tanker attacks went after Saudi Arabia they 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 sort of fomented the uh, the violent uh, protests at the U.S. embassy in Baghdad that actually breached the the gates there was a U.S. contractor employee that was killed uh, you know by uh, uh, Iranian militias so I think I think Trump just decided you know you know this is a red line now and 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 I think it's important too because. 
the Iranians had their 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 calculus is they cause enough trouble in the neighborhood uh, from a military standpoint, and they're calculating Trump doesn't want to go down that road, and so that gets him to the negotiating table to end sanctions. Um, but but obviously, you know, we've contended for some time that was a mis- miscalculation on their part, and and obviously that's the case. So so you know, I think that you know now Iran has to put this into their their calculation moving forward. You know, Trump is not going to just sit and take whatever they're they're going to do. I also think, by the way, this is okay. something that other places like Venezuela should keep in mind. Uh, you know, the, you know, people just operate under this theory that you know because Trump wanted to get out of wars and bring troops home, that he's not going to you know take military action where it's warranted. I think now this is. Uh, sort of, there's a lot of recalculation okay. going on around the world now. Joe, thanks for coming on with your analysis. Happy to be here. Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's continue talking now about the tension in the Middle East with the United States taking out Qasem Soleimani, that senior uh, Iranian general, the Iranian regime now promising a devastating response in revenge for this killing. Uh, we talked a little earlier about the economic of fallout from the events in the Middle East. Uh, let's uh, talk about what could happen next now with my guest, retired Lieutenant General Robert Walsh. He served in the U.S. Marine Corps for more than 39 years before his retirement in 2018. Uh, General, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. C- can you tell me a little bit about, for people who have never heard this guy's name before, Qasem Soleimani, why, who is this guy and why is it so, so significant that the United States have taken him out like this? Major General Soleimani, uh, for those uh, coalition members and U.S. service members who served in Iraq, would be very familiar with him during that time period uh, as the uh, the commander um, of Iraq's uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps or Quds Force. He was really the one responsible for getting a lot of the uh, large-scale, very uh, potent roadside bombs into uh, Iraq, and that's where I think you see the numbers that are attributed to him. That um, 600 or so U.S. casualties will be directly attributed to what uh, General Soleimani did back during that time period. Since that time, though, he has really become kind of the the leader, the backer of all the strategy going on, certainly from Iran, from a military standpoint, across the Middle East. And when I say across the Middle East, I mean from all the way down in Yemen. Uh, to where Iran is really trying to build a strategic land bridge going from Iran across Iraq into Syria, into Lebanon, uh, in places all the way into Gaza. So he really is the one that's been kind of building the strategy, using a lot of proxy forces across that region, and that's what you see as these Iraqi uh, mil- uh, Islamic or um, groups that he's got that he's working with in, in Iraq um, that support the, the Iranian um government inside Iraq, using those as a proxy force, just like they've done in other parts of the Middle East. And in almost every case, it's there to counter the U.S. efforts uh, and coalition efforts that are going on in the Middle East. Speaking to retired Lieutenant General Robert Walsh, it, it's interesting to see the the domestic reaction to this event in, in the United States, which seems to be kind of falling along uh, partisan lines. You got Republicans uh, praising pre- President Trump, saying this is showing America's strength and resolve here and taking this guy out as an enemy of the United States. 
the Democrats, though, especially the, the leading nominees for, for the presidential nominee for the Democrats, though, with a very different take on it. Joe Biden saying this is like throwing a stick of dynamite into a tinderbox and Bernie Sanders saying Trump could lead the United States into a costly war here. What's your take on it? Do you think this was the right thing to do? I think looking at it from a strategic standpoint, it was the right thing to do. And I think uh, listening to the administration lay this out, you have to take this thing in a larger perspective on how long this has been going on. And it really came from uh, really Iran's continued development of nuclear weapons against really the uh, the treaty that they had signed. Uh, and so with that, the U.S. started putting some pressure on them, and it was largely in the economic area. Putting economic sanctions on them was really starting to put a stranglehold on them. And what we started to see was Iran acting out. And those are the things you saw with the attacks on oil tankers, uh, the oil fields in Saudi Arabia. They shot down the U.S. drone. And finally to this point here, where they actually killed an American contractor uh, supporting the Iraqi forces and wounded several uh, U.S. service members. And that was kind of a red line uh, for the administration that even when you saw that they shot down a U.S. drone in the Persian Gulf, when they shot that down, there wasn't any immediate military reaction that you would have seen under previous administrations. There was a little bit more restraint because we knew the economic sanctions by the administration were working. But this, at that point in time, President Trump clearly laid that out, that that was going to be a red line not to cross and kill any U.S. Uh, citizens or Americans that are in the Middle East. And when they crossed that, I think it was clear. So I think they made the right call. There's obviously some strategic implications going on over this uh, across the globe, and now it's going to be the U.S.'s uh, um, efforts going to have to be now to be able to maintain the pressure and also to gain um, – uh, support from partner nations, both in the Middle East and across the globe. But I think what you've no. seen on the partisan side is, uh, as you're aware, well of, there's elections coming up, and those that are running for election are always generally going to take the opposite side on uh, what's going on and these sort of things to try to make a name for themselves or to be able to prove their opponent uh, wrong. But we're, I think in this case, it was about time to make this type of decision. Where does this go from here, I wonder? And you're a, you're a military strategy guy. I'm wondering if you see a plan evident here fr from the Trump White House that they, they take this guy out with extreme prejudice, but then what's next? Because, you know, tr Trump was saying that we killed this guy because he was going to kill us. He was going to kill our people, so we had to get to him first to prevent an attack. But it almost seems like when you take out a guy this high, this is the highest military general in the country, you're almost asking for a response, right? I mean, Iran cannot can't not respond to this. They're going to respond. I think what you're going to see out of Iran is you're probably going to see a pause. They're going to take a look at things and see where they need to go here. But I think in the long term, Iran knows they can't sustain. If this is going to escalate, and that's what they want it to do, they're not going to be able to escalate at the same level of capability that the uh, the U.S. government can, and certainly from a U.S. military standpoint. So I think this is going to be pause for them to realize that they were trying to operate underneath the radar in a lot of ways um, with some of the attacks they had been do doing and not expecting the, the U.S. to respond in this sort of way. But when they killed the U.S. citizen, you could see the response coming out of the U.S. So they're going to have to pause and look at this and see where they want to go, because certainly if you want to continue this type of escalation, uh, the U.S. is going to be able to continue with a lot more capability than Iran will ever be able so to bring. Do you, do you therefore think, General, that this would not lead to an all-out shooting war between the United States and Iran, or is it sort of more of a continuation of these sort of proxy skirmishes we see around the whole region? 
I, I think you've got it right, Mike, that it's going to be more of that. Iran is not going to want to take this to a higher level, nor does the U.S. want to take that to a level. In fact, you know, this really wore on the administration's patience for a long time because they really wanted to get Iran back to negotiating ta- tables uh, and keep them from gaining nuclear weapons. And it really was more of an economic war going on than any type of military conflict. So it was Iran really taking it at that level. So I think the U.S. now is going to be probably looking for to have proven a point, shown that they've crossed that red line, but now try to try to see if there can be some type of release point that can bring uh, things down to more or less than the simmer that it's on right now. And that could come from um, partners or allies in the region or from across the globe to help with trying to bring the, the relationships back down. But at the end of the day, the U.S. is going to protect its vital interests in the Middle East. Uh, they're going to okay. try to stop Iran from gaining nuclear weapons, and they're going to protect U.S. lives. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure, Mike. You have a great uh, day. Thank you. Let's talk about BC's confusing distracted driving laws. Now, a Vancouver Island woman says she's going to fight the ticket that she got. Her cell phone, she says, was securely mounted on the dashboard of her car. She touched the phone to change a song that was playing on her car's stereo speakers. Uh, cop saw her do it. Yeah, she got a big honking ticket. Let's check in with Kyla Lee now, criminal def- lawyer in Vancouver, handles a lot of cases like this. Kyla, it's nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so this woman gets this ticket here for a lot of money. This is a $368 ticket. She thinks it's unfair. What did she do wrong here? Well, I mean, what she did do wrong was touching the phone for a purpose unrelated to accepting, initiating, or declining a call. Those are the only touches that are permitted under the Motor Vehicle Act, and in those circumstances, it's only one touch to do any of those actions. But the ticket that she was issued in this case was also not valid, so she does have a good defense to it. Why is it not valid? There are two types of charges for using an electronic device. One uh, applies to people who have a Class 5 license, and one applies only to people who are Class 7 drivers, so with their L or their N. And the ticket that was issued to her was the Class 7 ticket, even though she has a Class 5 license. So she's not actually eligible for the ticket with the charge that she received. Okay, are you are you uh, acting for her? Yes, I'm uh, okay. taking this case on pro bono. So pro bono. Okay, so it sounds like you got a pretty good case there. Let me ask you about you know it just seems like on the surface that some of this stuff doesn't pass kind of a common sense test. If you have the phone securely mounted on your dashboard in some sort of dedicated phone holder, which she did, you're you're telling me you're allowed you are allowed to touch the phone to accept a phone call. That's okay, but you can't touch it to change a song on your on your speakers. Right. Correct. Is that correct? Okay. That's correct. And it, it right. is absurd. It, it completely defies common sense because it's about as dangerous to tap the phone to change the song on the phone as it is to tap the radio to change the radio station or to oh, change yeah. the volume. It, yeah. It's no different. Yeah, and don't a lot of new modern cars now have touch screens in them? A lot of modern cars have touchscreens, and some of them are incredibly distracting. The Tesla screens are about the size of a computer monitor. Right. Right. So there seems to be a lot of confusion out there about exactly what is legal and what's illegal under distracted driving. Can we go through a couple of the cases that we've heard about? I mean, what, what, what was that one, that the woman who said that uh, you're not allowed to put your, your phone in a cup holder? Was that one ever yeah. resolved? 
Yes, that has been resolved. There have been two cases now from the BC Supreme Court that have said you are allowed to have your phone loose in the vehicle, regardless of what class of license you have. Um, as long as you're not touching it or using any of its functions, um, the phone can be sitting there. That's totally fine. Okay, I also saw a, an argument on Twitter, and I, I believe, you, Kyla, you weighed in on this one with someone saying that this is actually, these laws are kind of unfair to poor people because if you've got an old car, uh, an old beater that maybe doesn't have a good radio in it, people are using their phones to listen to music. So it's sort of not fair to people who can't afford a newer car. Uh, I don't know, it's a bit of a bank shot for me, but what do you think of that argument? Well, I mean, I think it makes better sense in the circumstances of changing the song, you know, where, you know, on my car, I have a newer car, and so I can flick a, a switch that's on my steering wheel to navigate the song on my uh, on my music when I'm playing it through the car. Um, but a lot of cars don't have that function. And to expect people to comply with the law um, and still be able to have the, you know, enjoyment of listening to their music through the speakers, the law needs to, to accommodate everybody's circumstances. Right as long as there's not a public safety risk. And there isn't. Okay. Is the law unfair? I think so. I think the law is unfair. It's a huge consequence that is applied across the board, regardless of what you do with your phone. So if you pick it up to check a text message at a red light, versus if you're actively sending a text while you're in motion, one is much less dangerous than the other, but you get the same punishment regardless. Do you think that should be legal then? Like if you're stopped at a red light, you should be allowed to check a text message? I don't think so, but it's okay. not as dangerous inherently as actively texting or actively talking and holding your phone to your ear while you're driving. And the law could easily, you know, vary the type of punishment that people get based on the conduct they're engaged in and the public safety, you know, risk that's posed by that conduct. But it doesn't. And that, that makes an unfair law because people are being treated unequally yeah. under the law. What about touching the phone, say, to changes change a song on a uh, that you're listening to on your speakers do you think that should be allowed if the phone is securely mounted in a proper phone holder on the dashboard of your car should you be allowed to touch the screen for something other than taking a phone call yeah i mean touch the screen to confirm a change in gps directions you know when your gps pops up and says you can save five minutes by taking this route to click okay to click you know the shuffle button to change a song something that's a one touch to in, to use a feature of the phone doesn't take your eyes off the road long enough to pose a significant risk and any more risk than any of your vehicle's built-in features do okay let's here's what we'll do kylo we'll take a break right now when we come back we'll keep talking about this but let's open the phone lines now and you phone me and you tell me what you think about this story here you've got a vancouver island a single mom going to university and she gets uh, slapped with this uh, massive ticket, 368 bucks, for touching the phone to change a song. It's, the phone is mounted on the dashboard of her car. Do you think that should be allowed? You are allowed to touch the phone to take and hang up a phone call. Should you be allowed to scroll through songs on Spotify? Should you be allowed to check a text message if, the, if the, uh, it's mounted on the phone? What about when you're stopped at a red light? Do you think these distracted driving laws are fair? If, or if you have questions about how the law and it's applied, call me right now, 604-280-9898. Paul in Vancouver, hi. Hey, how are you? Good morning. Good. Yeah, uh, forget touching your cell phone to uh, change the screen. I've literally been driving 
And every morning I'd watch this guy eat breakfast going by me at 120 kilometers an hour. One morning he had like a bowl of cereal with milk and he's spooning it into his face. And, th- and then you've got people with their dogs in their car jumping yeah. all over them. Yeah. Like touching your screen to change a song, man. Like that's, that's a little extreme compared to all the other crazy distracted driving things. Right, right. Right. Thank you for that. Kyla, what do you think of that? I mean, you do see people doing that, you know, snarfing down a Big Mac and large fries while you're driving. I mean, mm-hmm. but that's technically illegal, too, though, isn't it? I mean, couldn't a cop write you up a ticket for dangerous driving or something? You could get ticketed for driving without due care and attention right. or for driving with the controls obstructed. So you can't have anything between you and the steering wheel while your vehicle is in motion. Right. So, I mean, they could still get you for that, but I wonder how common those type of tickets are. I mean, it sounds like they're writing a lot of these distracted driving tickets, but I wonder how often they write a ticket for, you know, eating a eating a bowl of cereal behind the wheel. They're very rare in my experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is that does that reveal the hypocrisy of the whole thing in your mind? It does. And the consequences, if you get the the driving with a bowl of cereal ticket, the consequences are less severe than the cell phone ticket. So even though it's more dangerous, um, it it does reveal the hypocrisy. John and Langley, hi. Hey. Hi, John. Go ahead. What do you want to say? Well, basically just that I I do agree that the ticket should be, uh, regardless of you're stopping at a light or with a song, especially with a song. Uh, when you're accepting a call with the one touch as per the MDA and Drive Smart BC, you're only hitting the button once, and you're not even really having to look back at the screen again. When you're changing your song, as a lot of people do, they'll shuffle, and they'll look at the phone to change the song, and then they'll change it again and look at the phone again, and it creates further havoc, especially uh, also with regard to stopping at a light. Um, there's no inherent immediate danger, but the problem is when you're sitting there, you're not paying attention to your peripherals, and then the light changes, and then you get people honking behind you, creating added road rage onto the road. So you're creating a problem down the road. Theoretically, yes, they could change it so that there's a 368 uh, distracted while in the vehicle's in motion, and maybe do a 167 for while it's stopped at a light in lieu. But definitely, uh, people just need to be able to read properly. It's all, all right. black and white. There should be no confusion. John, thank you for the call. I, I thought you raised some good points. Kyla, what do you think? I mean, I I don't disagree that if you are, you know, shuffling through your music to try and find that one song you want to hear, um, you know, that does create more of a risk. But that's not the facts in this case. Um, And for many people, you might hit the button to shuffle the song and then listen to what comes on, identify it based on listening and just hit the button without even looking at the screen to see what happens next. Okay, but aren't you opening up a huge gray area of the law there? I mean, how is a cop supposed to determine if you're just pressing the phone button once or you were scrolling or you're shuffling? I mean, how is a cop supposed to prove what you did? They make observations through the window. Oftentimes, in these cases, people are stopped at a red light and they're standing staring at them for several seconds before they come up and knock on the window. So uh, I don't think it would be difficult for the officers to enforce it that way. Karen in Surrey, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, Karen. Good. What'd you like to say? Um, I ended up getting a ticket. Um, I work with some kiddos that have different abilities, and I had one that was having some behaviors. And I basically just picked up the phone and passed it to her, and I got pulled over. Um, when the police pulled me over, uh, he said, "Do you know why you got pulled over?" I said, "No," and he was he wrote me a ticket using my device while driving. My de- device was locked. The girl had it in her hand. I actually 
saved a lot of distracting driving because I was passing it to her. I had to make that choice, yet I still got $368 ticket. So you, yeah, so you got the ticket for passing the, giving the phone to someone else in the car, Bas- yeah, and basically physically, yeah. It, yeah, it was just right up and over. It was nothing. She was waiting for it. But if you knew huh. what other kind of things could have happened with this girl in the back seat, like she okay. kicks out windows and that, I did the right thing. But okay, I Karen. Still th- got- thank you for the call. I, just, I hate to step on you, but they're out of time. Thirty seconds, Kyla. Um, you would potentially in those circumstances have a defense of necessity where there was imminent peril posed by a person with a behavioral disorder um, who may have caused more risk to you. And the decision to touch the phone momentarily oh. was uh, was would be de- reasonably defended by that um, by that situation. So she may have had so- a defense there. Sounds like she needs a good lawyer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> OK, just giving you a quick plug there. OK, Kyla, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I agree. You bet. That's Kyla Lee. All right, it's Mike Smith filling in for Simi. The tent city at Oppenheimer Park in Vancouver has been going for more than a year. A lot of people who were critics of that tent city and wanted it shut down had been predicting it was only a matter of time before someone lost their life down there. Sadly, those predictions have now come true with the first homicide of the year in the city of Vancouver uh, related to violence at Oppenheimer Park, police uh, investigating after a man was assaulted at the park on New Year's Day. He died yesterday in hospital. Police have invest- uh, identifying the victim, 62-year-old Jesus Cristobal Esteban. Is this more evidence now that that park is dangerous and should be shut down? Let's check in now with Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby Young. Councilor, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, this is a, a, a sad day to hear about this, this homicide related to the park. A lot of people saw it coming. Your thoughts on what's happened here? Uh, well, I, I think you said it, Mike. It, it, is, it is really sad. It's not surprising. I think um, I, along with others, said that, God forbid, that we would have a homicide and we could potentially, if the situation was unchecked, and that's what we have now. I think we need to be careful to get the facts. I know Vancouver Police are just releasing those now. We know the uh, identity of the victim. Uh, we don't have details yet about if there's sort of any criminality um, with the individuals involved um, on both sides. But regardless, I think that this speaks to what the Vancouver police have been talking about and advising the Vancouver Park Board that they feel the situation in the park is unsafe and they don't sanction the continued encampment in the park. Do you believe the park should be shut down? I do. I oh, think the, it's time the, the for an injunction. And I think, I think it's time. I think there's there are no human rights that trump or triumph over the loss of life, um, period. And that's what we're seeing right now. And so we need to put that first. Um, we need to get people into the housing available. It's not perfect. Not everybody you know, liked all of the housing that was available, but there was housing offered in August. And letting this situation carry on is just not good for everybody. It's not safe. Um, and uh, I really fear for sort of innocent victims in the park and, and around in the neighborhood who are increasingly scared, and they should be. Right. There's been a lot of people have been raising the alarm about the danger of the tent city, including first responders, police, paramedics, and firefighters who've been called out frequently to the tent city in Oppenheimer Park and warning that there was a lot of danger down there, that people were being preyed upon. Uh, there's violence, there's weapons, there's a lot of drug dealing going on, and that it was, as as you mentioned, like a lot of people were saying, it just it just seemed to be like a matter of time before we had yeah. to cover a story like this of a homicide related to that 
to that park. When you have talked to those first responders of the police, what do they tell you is the situation down there in terms of the danger to people? Well, I talk regularly with uh, talk with the uh, you know senior BPD officials. I've talked regularly with our fire chief, and our fire chief has said he's really concerned that uh, yeah. <laughs> he was really just concerned around um, sort of unintended harm or you know potential injuries or deaths due to things like tents and fires. Um, and so that was one thing that our professional staff have told the Vancouver Park Board repeatedly, uh, as well as council. Um, in terms of the Vancouver Police, um, we hear that those officers won't go in the park alone at night. They won't go in in twos. They're going in, in in larger groups now. And if our first responders that are there to protect people don't feel safe, that's a warning sign. Um, and when you have all your professional staff saying, look, this situation can't continue, we don't sanction it, we don't support it, um, and we're standing up and saying that, then I think the elected officials need to listen. I'm really at a loss as to what the Vancouver Park Board is doing. They said that they wanted to move forward towards a voluntary decamment, and they wanted to do a study and figure out what the housing needs are. Well, last time I checked, they're in the business of parks, not housing. The city already has a housing department. We've worked closely with BC Housing. That work um, has been done. There's a huge outreach that has happened with the residents in Oppenheimer Park, and it's time to move forward. So if this doesn't get the park board to do it, I don't know what will, but it's absolutely irresponsible for them not to take action. They need to do it, and they need to do it right now. Speaking to Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young, when you talk to supporters of the residents of, of the park who think it should be allowed to continue, it should not be shut down, you know, quite often you hear people say, well, look, these are the poorest of the poor, these are very vulnerable people who got nowhere else to go. And I think in many cases that's absolutely true. But I think the tragedy is there's, there are bad people down there who will go down there and prey on these people. And your, your city, your, counts, your uh, colleague on city council, uh, said Melissa DiGenova told me earlier in the show that some of the people down there are like sitting ducks as, as they're being preyed upon. They are they are marginalized people, and we do need to look after them and take care of them, and that's why the city came up with a housing plan to support them. Um, but they are, the longer the situation goes on, they're being preyed on um, yeah. by people because they are vulnerable. And so, you know, again, I go back to it's, it's about taking care of the people in the park, and they need help, but so do the residents of the area that need mm-hmm. the right to sort of feel safe in their neighborhood. Um, and they're increasingly not. We've got seniors down there. We've got, you know, some people, families down there. We've got residents that are actually trying to use that park and just be still safe walking around their neighborhood. So I think that uh, this isn't about not taking care of the people. This is about looking at the risk. And the risk is too great to leave the encampment the way it is. Okay, the hesitancy by the park board to shut the tent city down is the, the most common excuse you hear or explanation is that there's nowhere to put these people. They don't have enough there's not enough adequate housing to rehouse these people if they're moved out of the tent city. What do you think about that? Like if, if we got an injunction to shut the tent city down, which I'm, I'm kind of in agreement with you that maybe that needs to be done, but where do, they, where do you go? What do you do with them? Well, I think I go back to saying that in August, the city worked really hard with BC Housing and partners to make sure there was enough housing together before they wanted to move forward with the injunction in August. And that plan was in place and there was housing for every single identified individual in that park. And the park board said no. They wanted it to be a voluntary decampment. Um, and there's a few people down there that I believe are using this as an opportunity, as an activist um, opportunity. Um, and I don't think that they have the best interests of those people at heart. So calling a spade a spade, that's the reality. And we do need to, we can get people into housing. We had a plan to do it. Um, and it's the reason that hasn't happened is just because of the Vancouver Park Board. Okay. The activists that you mentioned, Councillor, that maybe have a... a a different motivation in your opinion what is that motivation like why are why do some people want to see the tent city continue 
Well, I think it's an opportunity to bring attention to the real, very real challenges of homelessness that we sure. have in the city um, and addiction. But I, I can reassure you that the city is really well aware of these. And um, ha- having people continue to be there is not going to make that situation better. So I try to look at its progressive improvement. If we can get people out of the park, especially in the cold weather, it's getting increasingly cold. Like I said earlier, there's risk from fires and, and personal injury that can happen. At least we're trying to start somewhere and move people along that spectrum. Um, and if we can get a roof above people's heads, that's a start. Oh, okay. The um, the situa- the dangers in that park right now in terms of weapons, people trying to heat their tents, there's a fire hazard down there. Who knows if there could be rats or anything else that could be down there, which typically happens with it in a situation like this. This is a city we've spent over a million dollars maintaining this thing down there. Yeah, that, and, and does, what think? Well, think about what what, what would, would you rather have a million dollars spent on? Would you rather have no. it spent on trying to keep maintain some sanitary conditions in an environment that's not designed for it? And, and yes, I am hearing there are rats down there. And yes, things like the washroom vendors have pulled out because their staff no longer felt comfortable and safe servicing them. So it's been deteriorating. And, and with a million dollars, people say, "Well, I didn't go very far in housing." It's still a lot of money. Um, there's a lot that could be done towards that in terms of you know running additional shelter capacity or getting people um, into some permanent housing. So I don't think it's the best expenditure of money. I think the statement has been made. We know the serious issues we're facing. So let's try to deal with the solutions and stop making a statement. I I wonder, though, if you took that million dollars that's been spent to maintain this tent city and you dedicated that to some sort of affordable housing or social housing for people, would it even make a dent? Like if you shut down this tent city tomorrow... Uh, would another one just pop up somewhere else at another park or under another bridge? Well, it's a bit, I mean, it's, we've got huge issues, Mike, and, and I think we all know that. Nobody's sugarcoating it, but you've got to start yeah. somewhere, and I don't think that you know blowing a million dollars on people living outdoors makes a lot of sense. I just don't. So and, and, I, I think that every every bit counts, and we need to invest as much as we can in affordable housing, but um, saying, well, it's not going to make a difference. Well, a million does here and a little bit does there, and, you know, and, you know BC Housing, again, I said, came to the table with a lot of support. Um, so it's something we need to do with partners, and we have that support. And again, I go back to the fact the park board said no. So my my ask to them is, you know, I'm reaching out is please just say yes. Speaking of city councilor Sarah Kirby Young, my last question to you, councilor: Is there anything City Hall can do on this file, or is this strictly down to the park board? Park board has full jurisdiction over the 230 parks in the city, so it does squarely sit in in their court. Um, I think that. Uh, there's not a lot of tools available legislatively to the city right now. Like the city can't go and pursue an injunction on its own. Um, that needs to be done by the Vancouver Park Board. So um, there's there's not a lot, awful lot of tools that we have. Um, and that's, I think, the frustrating part of this situation. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me.